And at 24, having just launched a business, I was sitting on my couch in my two-bedroom apartment. I literally had to pick my jaw up off the ground. And I just said yes. I had no idea what I was doing. I just said yes and I thought I'll work it out later. And then I was on the phone to my mom. <laughs> And I was on the phone to family and friends. I need your help. I have this large order. At the time, I had no idea that I could actually outsource. My love for outsourcing evolved as I had the business. But at the time, I thought I had to do everything myself. And I did. Hello, and welcome to Smart Online Marketing, where I chat to switched on entrepreneurs and experts to chat about smart strategies to build your business in a profitable and sustainable way. My name is Katie Griffin, and I am in the digital marketing game. I specialize in Google Ads, and I've worked one-on-one with clients such as Showpose, Homework Allure, and Snuggle Honey Kids. And I also have my own course, teaching small businesses how to grow profitably using Google Ads. If we haven't met before, I'm a kombucha-loving, real housewives apologist, alongside my love of all things pop culture, and yes, that does include the Kardashians. I'm a mum of two, a self-confessed hippie at heart with a love of all things business. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I am so thrilled that you are listening. I hope that you're having a great week. Whatever you're doing, my week is going well. I'm currently two weeks into the group coaching program that I hold where I teach people how to profitably use Google Ads and we're in week two, so people are connecting the dots with all the tech bits and pieces, which can be a bit of a headache. And I feel like we've got such a great group of of business owners and marketers in there upskilling on all things Google Ads, which has been so great. And there's like 85 people in there, which is, you know, fantastic. Also, if you're in Melbourne like I am, you will know that a couple of weeks ago school went back. I don't have school-aged kids at the moment, but my daughter, both my daughters were able to return to daycare, which has been a little bit easier to manage the work life juggle. So my thoughts are with all the Melbourne mums and dads that have kids that are returning to school and you know you're able to carve a little bit of time out for yourself, hopefully. On today's episode, I have the amazing Sarah Cross and she's a product growth strategist and business coach and she works with creative women in the homewares and lifestyle industry. So what she does is she helps to identify and drive new opportunities and revenue streams that help her clients grow to a million dollars. And she has first-hand knowledge of it, so she actually had her own product-based business. She scaled that and sold it for half a million dollars, and she had that business for 10 years. And then she transitioned to more of the service-based side to help e-com businesses and e-com owners that maybe are struggling with pricing. And, you know, she says in this episode that pricing is often one of the the biggest mistakes that businesses make is just not pricing enough and not charging enough for their services, which I come, I have a lot of experience with too. First of all, when I was an e-com business owner, I ran into that same issue myself, but also now with my students and clients, you know, when you factor in things like acquisition costs and, and marketing and PR, all that sort of stuff on top of your existing cost of goods sold, it can send you into a place where you're not profitable anymore. So Sarah's really passionate actually about identifying good product pricing strategies and and developing multiple revenue streams like wholesaling and exporting and all those sort of things that so you're not relying on just B2C customer client acquisition. So we had a really good chat and I think you'll learn a lot from it. Let's dive in. Well, thank you, Sarah, for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Katie. Love to be. I'm so excited to have you. We've been doing a bit of um, podcast swaps lately, you and I. And I want you to tell me a bit about you and your background. 
So I am a product business coach and growth strategist, and I work with creative women in the homeware and giftware industry to help them expand their businesses and take their businesses to over a million dollars. And how did you get into that? So that's like a very, like, you know, that's quite a a specific niche you've got, you've carved out for yourself. How did you get into that particular area? Uh, So around about four years ago, I was approached um, by uh, two women who were running a gift hamper business um, through a contact through my children's uh, school, actually. And they knew my background and sort of said, we need some help. You know, would you be willing to give us some, you know, some coaching? Um, so it kind of all evolved around from there. But my my former history was that I actually started up a, a very startup um, rags to riches business from my kitchen table um, that I ran for 10 years. And it was a corporate gift hamper business. And um, it was um, highly successful, highly stressful. Mm-hmm. And I uh, went on to sell the business after 10 years for half a million dollars. Wow. And how do you, before you were doing that, so before you were in the corporate gift hamper business, what was your, like, did you have any experience in e-com or in, in product-based business at all? I actually have a background in hotel management. So I've been professionally trained in um, uh, cooking. So I'm actually a trained um, chef and I had been working in a city law firm um, and I had seen that there was obviously quite an endless supply of money available (laughs) at that level and that they were exchanging gifts and that they were providing, you know, beautiful luncheons. And I was, I was a private caterer for that on contract for them, on contract for a year. Um, so the transition for me going into, from a hospitality creative, you know, background where I loved food, but I didn't want the hours of working my nights and my weekends. I really wanted a Monday to Friday business. And I've been raised by parents that are both small business owners. So it's kind of a thing in our blood, in a sense, that we always, I guess I always had a burning desire to have my own business. I didn't know at the time that I'd be only 24 when I started my first business. And um, starting out my first business uh, really just evolved and, and it took off. So it was uh, sort of pre-millennium uh, days. Uh, back then, there was really very limited e-com. Facebook hadn't arrived. Mm. So it was very old school. I had yellow pages. Mm. And when I started my business, my intention was, was to provide gifts and uh, look at opportunities that, you know, uh, small businesses could exchange thank you gifts to staff and clients. What I didn't know how lucrative it was going to be was my first Christmas, I just launched the business and I I was about three months into starting and leading up to the Christmas period and I had secured through warm contacts some good size orders. I was pretty happy with how things were going. And then uh, I got a referral from uh, having worked at the law firm uh, to another law firm who said, oh, we believe you'll set up this business and we need 800 Mm. and we need them in 10 days (laughs) and uh, the dollars were (laughs) the numbers were calculating in my head and I I worked out it was $30,000 wow at 24 having just launched a business I was sitting on my couch in my two-bedroom apartment I literally had to pick my jaw up off the ground and I just said yes I had no idea what I was doing I just said yes and I thought I'll work it out later 
Yeah, wow. And then I was on the phone to my mom. <laughs> And I was on the phone to family and friends. I need your help. I have this large order. At the time, I had no idea that I could actually outsource. My love for outsourcing evolved as I had the business. But at the time, I thought I had to do everything myself. And I did. And I put handmade uh, cream, nice handmade chocolate truffles in the actual hamper without even considering that we were in summer, in the midst of summer. Mm. And I overtook a friend's uh, house and we stored all the hampers everywhere. Everything was gift wrapped. It was quite crazy. But I was able to fulfil. I was able to make them look good. They were happy. I got paid. And that was my biggest turning point because I had validation that I was onto something really positive. And you talk about, we've spoken before and you've spoken about how the challenges with running a business like that is it is incredibly seasonal. So you effectively do 12 months of work in a really short period of time, really about a three-month period. Is that right or even shorter? So 60% of my revenue was made in one month of the year. Yes. So that's six months rolled into one month. So it was very intense. Uh, it was highly stressful, lots of moving parts um, and lots of areas that things could go wrong in terms mm. of coordinating um, suppliers to supply on time in order for us to fulfill orders to our clients because we had to pack the orders and then uh, ship them. So there was a lot of moving parts and a lot of stress um, in terms of getting everything underway in, in that sense. And so how do you, you know, you're 24 years old, you're getting these really big orders and you're getting some momentum. How do you roll that into a business that isn't, that is sustainable and it, it's, it's profitable, like where do you get those skills? Well, I'm a big believer now as a business coach that you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. So I, I believe that your business should, should have multiple revenue streams rather than relying on just one because during the times such as now with COVID, uh, a lot of people I've seen really hit very hard in their business is when there's no markets or no trade shows, no mm -hmm. in so that basically has dried up all their revenue. That was their only revenue stream to make money in their business. And then they've had to scramble and try and get themselves onto e-com so that they can make online sales. So my, my going back to my original business um, with the gift hampers, um, I had crickets after that first big Christmas. And I thought, whoa, okay, how am I going to sustain this, make this an income? How am I going to scale this business? I tapped into... Uh, an industry such as um, property development, real estate and the prestige car dealers. They are all selling high ticket. They rely on referrals. They all give a gift on settlement. When keys are exchanged, that's when they give a gift to say thank you for working with us, thank you for being, you know, for purchasing in the hope that they'll get repeat business. So that was my bread and butter and then my real cash cow was Christmas. So you sort of had the different, you had the sustainable all year round stuff and then you had the big kind of influx during the Christmas yeah, period. That's right. So I was able to leverage when I was, for instance, working with a real estate group who might have 25 offices, I was able to leverage by um, adapting uh, to their requirements a um, specific gift that would suit their budget and their, their marketing and what they needed. And I was able to then leverage and get into the other remaining 25 offices. So that became then like a regular monthly $40,000 wow. revenue. 
So I was able to just replicate that as I went um, over the 10 years. And so were you, did you, over those 10 years, did you need to transition to online or was that not at a point where you needed to make that jump? So it was originally old school. It moved from yellow pages to internet. I did a lot of networking. I actually, because I didn't have, I started the business with $2,000 and a computer. I, it was very organic, very homegrown. Um, I leveraged it by using a lot of networking events, going along and meeting and sitting next to and talking to people. Um, at the time, I didn't have children, so I had obviously the freedom to um, make myself, you know, I could give a door prize, I could use my hampers as a way of a marketing tool. And a lot of my business was built initially on referral, on word of mouth. Uh, which I'm always a big believer of still. I'm still a bit mm-hmm. old school um, and I think people do business with people. So even now there's a platform like LinkedIn, which I'm a, a huge fan of. Um, it's a business-to-business connection platform where people can connect, um, you know, locally and then they can connect internationally. So it's um, it's sort of a transition to that and then um, probably in the latter sort of three to four years of my business before I sold it, um, was when there was more of a merge onto ordering online. They started mm-hmm. to be growing, you know, people would come back. And at the time, I think people were always a bit, you know, reluctant to put their credit card details. Yeah. You know, they were still a bit nervous about going down the whole payment. How do I pay? Can I put it on, order it online and then ring you with the phone, yes. <laughs> you know, with the credit card details? And I mean, we took orders however people wanted them. But I think the advantage in that business was that. I was able to customise to what the company's requirements were and that's what made it so lucrative. I just find that story really like phenomenal in that you managed to build this thriving business and it was from your kitchen table, like you said. I'm interested, I I love what you said about um, people do business with people and I think that makes more sense when when you're thinking about a service-based business, because for example, with me, with my clients, of course, they're buying into me as a client manager, as well as the service that I can provide. I think where the disconnect happens with product-based businesses is a lot of the people think the product will do the talking for them. And I see this a lot on maybe social channels as well, that there's not a lot of engagement with the, the actual people behind the brand. Can you talk a bit about how people can inject their own their own faces or their own people into their brand so that people do have an emotional tie to the, per- to the people behind the business, not just what it can offer them? I think it's about getting real. I think social media is, is good. It's a double-edged sword. It sort of creates, um, you know, an awareness for people to get to know the maker. So many people are fascinated. They want to deal with the owner in most situations. Yeah. They want to know who, meet the maker, who's behind the brand. And I think being as real as possible um, to build those relationships is really important Um, in terms of uh, I had an Instagram audit report done and the most surprising thing out of the five stars that were the five areas um, that I needed to focus on, my biggest one was that I had the most engagement when I talked about my mum life Mm. and I talked about, um, you know, my background and it's, I never actually think that people are that interested, but people are very taken with wanting to know there's got to be an emotional connection. And I think for 
um, clients working, for instance, you know, with stockists and selling, it's about listening and it's about nurturing relationships. So it is about injecting your personality and there has to be, I guess, a customer journey. If someone's actually purchasing from you, um, they're doing it for the reason that it's, uh, they've got an emotional connection to make. People don't buy with logic. People buy with emotion. Mm. And they've got to actually have, um, for the, the business relationships that I built over that 10 years have running that corporate gifting business, I built relationships. And I maybe, I mean, I don't always know whether, I think there's studies done that 77% of people buy from people they like and mm. they buy, they repeat buy when you build a relationship. It's not always just about the product. I guess that sucks if you have a terrible personality. Like <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> That could that could actually yeah if you're if you're extremely introverted it could be a challenge but I think yeah. I think if you can um, showcase your passion and uh, what your 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 products are about I think people do like to know more about you so they build that emotional connection with your brand and with your product yeah you then transitioned after you saw that business. What was the gap between starting your current coaching business and selling your product-based business? Uh, so I guess the transition from a product-based business, I, I sold up the business and it was an emotional transition because that business was my identity and I guess, you know, my ego quite a bit, you know. Um, I think at the time I swore to myself I would never hire staff again. I would never have a shelf life product again. When I mentioned moving parts, there was a lot of moving parts to manage in that in that business as it grew um, so rapidly. And would they be the two key reasons why you did end up selling it? Was it and were you entering that new phase of life with children? And yes, I was. I, my oldest son was two, and I wanted. Yeah plan for a second baby I think at the time I realized I was a little burnt out and I was ready for something new yeah and I I uh had my business um uh, registered with a business broker and it took six months for them to find the right buyer but when I got that offer I literally said yes and, and I have never looked back mm. and so you said you got approached to do just some coaching on the side for some mums in the schoolyard, what was the time frame between selling the business and doing and getting approached like that? Uh, so that was roughly around about, uh, I think, around about five years. And so, what were you doing in that period? Were you just concentrated on being a mum? And I did something that has always been a deep passion of mine, and that is um, property. And I did property development. I purchased a, a site. And I uh, went through the process of planning and permits and um, title splits and um, getting the property ready and I resold the property. So I did something that was a bit different and I also did a professional renovation course as well because I have a passion for interiors and properties and, um, yeah, my retirement goal would be to flip properties. That's what I'd love to do. That's so interesting and I think that probably ties in really nicely with you being able to get into that that really lucrative contract with the, the, that real estate agent as well and that you kind of understood the market and yeah. what they needed. So you now have your own coaching business and you work, like you said, you work with people that um, are in the homewares and the lifestyle industry. I want to understand what what are the main things that you, you work with 
you, you focus predominantly on women, female entrepreneurs, don't you? Yeah, so I only, I am very niche, so I only work with women who have a product that is in the market. Yeah. In the homeware, lifestyle, giftware, fashion industry. And what, actually, let's back up a little bit. How did you, besides that person that, although the couple that, um, the two women that approached you in the schoolyard, how did you find clients? Like, how did you get yourself out there? Again, you would have been starting from ground zero where you're having to hustle your way up to getting a name for yourself. How did that happen? Um, It was a bit of a slow burn in the first 12 months because transitioning from a product business where I always sort of feel like the product could kind of, I could stand behind the product. I was actually then working in a service-based industry. I was the product and it was a lot more confrontational because it felt like I was selling me. Um, At least with a product, you can blame your supplier, you can blame staff. Yeah, like I blame my parents (laughs) for the faulty genes. Yeah, but when you're service-based, it is very, very, I guess, more ego-based in a sense. Yeah. You are selling yourself. You're selling your experience. So my initial transition was to focus on my background working in the gift hamper space. So I've kind of transitioned out of that into just product importing and manufacturing and wholesaling the product. Um, and when you get clients, what, what sort of stuff are you working with them on? With uh, clients that come to me, my ideal client is a creative female artist, designer, illustrator who has uh, had a product established, product validation. It's possibly selling really well on e-com. They want to establish another revenue stream. So they want to actually work with me to have a wholesale strategy for expansion, whether it be locally within Australia or expanding their business and their sales internationally. And why is the wholesale um, channel or avenue, why do you recommend that that path? Uh, probably the top three reasons is that it's highly scalable. So your um, minimum order is going to be inflated because you're buying in volume. Therefore, your prices go down, your cost of goods go down when you have buying power. Mm. It's highly scalable because it's a cash cow for your business to have restocking and people reordering to replenish their stock when they sell out through stockers. And it's also very highly targeted. So the system that I teach is that it's incredibly targeted as to where you want to have your products placed in the market and being sold in with um, chain store retailers or large multi, multi-chain independents. There's a lot of it come down to the your the same philosophy, I guess, of, of that networking aspect. Does that come into play when you're trying to, I guess, secure wholesaling and, and distribution is that, is, or is it a different strategy? Like what sort of strategy do you use to, to go down that path? My strategy is a little bit sort of two pronged. So I, I actually, my strategy is um, online nurturing using Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, So a little bit kind of, uh, you know, obviously there has to be multiple touch points for people to get to understand what your product is and who you are, making that connection. And then I also have um, my other strategy is direct mail, so it's offline. Mm. So it's a two-prong approach because I find a lot of people that have knocking on doors, they hide behind their email. And people's inboxes, as you know, get incredibly full and they don't always respond. So 
um, I teach clients how to get the cut through to get yeah, the, right. get the conversation with the decision maker, the key buyer, who's going to make that decision to put an order through and a substantial order at that and then multiple orders ongoing. And you talk a lot about, um, I think what, one of the things that people don't necessarily realise when they're getting into, and I find this too with my students as well in my course, that they get into e-com and they, they kind of, they, they, they start out, they put a website up, they get, have their products and they're kind of just flying blind. They're not sure what they're doing necessarily. And then when it comes to pricing, they kind of just pick a number and, and put it up there for a product. And then that doesn't necessarily factor into things like, well, what if you want to add ad costs on top of that? How does that impact your ability to utilize paid advertising if you've got such tight margins? Would you say that incorrect pricing would be a huge mistake that a lot of businesses make? Yeah, I think probably I'd say maybe 80 to 90% of, of um, product-based owners have are incorrectly priced and generally as a rule underpriced. They don't take on board that there's going to be um, a labour component. Mm. The labour component is really to cover yourself for um, absorbing fixed costs and when you start employing staff. When the business grows too big and you start receiving so many orders, you need to start to outsource, you need to hire and packing staff or you need to have your products sent to a third-party logistics mm. centre who will actually do the packing and fulfilling and shipping for you. So a lot of the people, particularly hand makers, people that I've worked with, for instance, um, ceramicists, candle makers, jewellery makers, skincare, they don't factor in their time. Mm. And everyone has time, like their time has a dollar value on it. They just simply put a formula of, um, you know, just doubling the cost of goods. And that's not enough. As you said, there's got to be um, room in there for paid ads. And mm. marketing, marketing is basically the lifeblood of the business. If, if sales aren't happening, it's a direct result of, not, of ineffective marketing or not enough marketing to the right audience. And I think also that a lot of people don't actually take the time to figure out those sort of things, like the amount of um, students that I have. And it's not for fault of their own. I think that it's just something that's spoken about but you'll talk about what's your cost of goods sold or what's your margin and they'll be like, oh, I'm not sure. And I think that's something that a lot of people need to be further educated on. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that people sort of start out, like you said, organically. Some people I see start out at markets. Mm. And basically a lot of people are, uh, especially women, I think, um, are frightened that they're going to be told it's too expensive. Mm. And markets are, I think, quite a, a rough sort of entry point to starting out your business because people will tell you um, things that you don't always really want to hear. Oh, well, we could make that, you know, or, oh, that looks easy or that's really expensive. And they'll say it verbally enough that people can hear who's the yeah. owner. Business. Whereas normally they'd be saying that after they leave the shop or when they're yes. online, yes. I'll look at, you know, you don't necessarily get that direct feedback. Um, so markets is a very sort of confrontational way in a sense of basically being able to adapt the right pricing for the right market. But moving from markets and into a business that's going to be very sustainable, I've worked with and coached many people who have gone from working from their spare room or their garage into commercial size units and taking on a lease taking on fixed costs and also hiring staff. So the business has to be sustainable and profitable through that growth period. And I generally generally will always 
review and look at pricing from the very start when I first start working with a, co- a coaching client. And especially there's those costs that a lot of people don't don't think about, like you've got even payment processing costs and that impacts your, um, that cuts into things and you've got your website hosting. You've got all these little, little costs that add up that will impact your overall profitability. Yeah. How do you then work to fix a pricing structure if it's not working or how do you work to, I mean, one thing that I like to talk to my students about is how can you increase your average order value? Because that will then impact the, the um, efficiency of your paid ads. If you spend the same amount of money to acquire a customer, but you, they're paying more to shop with you, they're mm-hmm. buying more products. Like how, how do you work with that? So I'm, I'm not a big person to promote sales or discounts. I actually don't think that that's always the right measure to scale your business. Um, I guess based on my former former experience in the 10 years of selling uh, gift sets and gift packs, I always promote um, incentivizing through bundling and upsells mm-hmm. and increasing that average, that client average order, as you mentioned, um, makes such a huge difference, especially when you are running paid ads. Um, you know, ideally if your average customer acquisition is, you know, let's say $55. I mean, getting them to upsell them to a complimentary product or a um, a bundling up and saving a, you know, perhaps a a small percentage or getting a bonus gift will get you over that $80 mark and getting clients moving from 55 to 80 to a hundred dollars spending is a great way to scale up your, your sales, your revenue. Um, is to to sort of be offering them upsells and card ads and things like that. Yeah, and I think also with the the dangerous part of going down the sales portion is you will you run into the the problem that people will expect that. Like I, there's certain places that I shop online that I don't buy unless there's a sale because I know that every X amount of months there'll be a sale, yeah. and then you you run into the issue that no one's buying full price. And I, I see this around a lot about the Black Friday, Cyber Monday stuff as well, is that people hold out and whether that, whether, whether you're participating in those sort of sales, like do you have a view on whether that's actually beneficial for your business? I don't think, I think it's, yeah, not great territory to condition clients. Clients get conditioned with, like you said, with the expectation of sales. I think that there needs to be, um, some multiple multiple strategies in terms of how what you offer and what you upsell and what you clear. Some people do need to be able to clear stock that's been not moving. So there are ways of you know spend X amount and um, get a bonus or buy two and get um, perhaps a sale would be buy two and get you know twenty five percent off the third. I have a past client of mine who scaled a business very rapidly over seven figures in the 12 months we worked together by offering things like a birthday um, celebration for her business. So all her loyal customers who follow her, who some of them even have 12 pairs of her shoes, her Spanish shoes that she imports, um, she uh, did incredibly well um, by doing a bundle offer. So sort of mm. that we're going to buy probably wanting to purchase two of these new colour range or um, they would sort of buy that third with an incentive that they save 30% off the third. Yeah. And it's more of a psychological factor as well is that, well, I'm, I do that, you know, it's the same thing with sort of free shipping that if it's over a certain threshold, then, well, I may as well bump up my order to get that free shipping amount yeah. as well. Yeah. And I do find people um, 
I have had this quite often. Um, people sort of make the mistake of including shipping in the cost of what they're selling rather than setting a threshold that people need to be incentivized to spend to 100 or 150. So they're actually... So you prefer to have a, have a threshold? Yes, yes, and not to include shipping in the cost of your goods um, because it's basically taking away your profit, especially if people aren't reaching that, that threshold. Mm. So they're offering free shipping flat rate for everybody. Mm. And then there's no incentive to, to bump up your order. Exactly. Yeah. And I find that even as a consumer myself, that there will be businesses that even if it's like a $60 threshold, I will, I will reach it. But if they had a free threshold, no matter what, sorry, a free flat rate free, I would just buy the $20 product I was looking for. And then they lose money because their product costs 20 bucks. Their shipping probably costs $10 and their labor and everything factors into it. And then you even, like you look at Afterpay, the cost is like 6%. So if you take away the shipping cost and the cost of their goods, there's no profit. In some ways they're actually... Um, Running a charity. Yeah, it's a charity. It's, it's basically a free a freebie. So a lot of people do come to me with amazing products and the ones that I look at that I realise that there's absolutely no profitability in their mm. business model that needs a complete overhaul from the very start. And is it too late once you're already maybe a couple of years down the track and you're finding that you've got really good demand and there's great products, is it too late to go and change that pricing structure? Like will you, will you lose that goodwill that you've already built up? I think that um, based on where you're actually sourcing the product, some people start off sort of doing the hand making and then they realise that um, their overheads are too high and that they, they can't be competitive. But by entering into the wholesale market, they then have volume buying and buying in quantity that they can then, um, they've got the capacity to go offshore and then they can negotiate because they're buying in much larger volume. Mm. So, so it doesn't mean you need to necessarily double your prices. The cost of goods come down. And also if they were formerly maybe importing and air freighting, they then can switch to a cheaper option like sea freighting because they've got the volume, they've got the buying power. Mm. So okay. it's all not lost, but I think that the key is, is actually tapping into multiple revenue streams in order for you to be, it's going to be more lucrative when you are correctly priced to sell e-com, but the advantage of wholesaling is that you're going to get the buying power and you're going to get the consistent cash flow, recurring cash flow in your business. And I want to talk about also, you said LinkedIn before and something that, that to me has always been more of like a service B2B marketplace. How can you use LinkedIn effectively when you're in the e-com space? Can you still get consumer-based B2C sales there too? Uh, not really. People are, are are there on LinkedIn as key buyers. Yeah. Okay. So it's more of it's more for that wholesale aspect, arm of your business. because it's B two B. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly powerful if you're wanting to expand your business internationally because it puts you on a platform and the uh, the reach is much greater, um, and also gives validation that people can look at your profile and read more about your business. Um, but I don't sort of stop just there at LinkedIn. There also has to be the connection point on Instagram. So another another digital platform that's more of a um, obviously very um, visually um, enjoyable. I get quite caught up in Instagram because there's so many beautiful products to look look at. You know, there's product owners everywhere. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a sort of a I guess a, a two prong approach of online and offline to really stand out to actually 
rise above all the noise um, to get a, a proposal or an appointment or a phone call or a conversation started so there is a connection and then nurturing that relationship so that you can become a, um, a stockist. Um, sorry, you can, you can supply your wholesale goods to stockers. Yeah. And before we wrap up, I want to talk about you, you, your goal is to kind of grow your clients to they have million dollar businesses. What are some of the, the common elements you see with businesses that, that are able to reach that mark? I think that, uh, you know, hands off the tools is probably the fastest way that people can scale their business. If someone's sitting up sewing at night, it's going to be a very slow burn for them to be able to do that unless they can actually bring in a team or they Mm. can start outsourcing it. So a bit of a hands-off approach would be a product that you aren't actually handling so much, a product that is um, able to be potentially distributed from a 3PL fulfillment. Um, The other aspect that I see that happens is that because I coach creative women, predominantly they all are at the um, raising children. So mm-hmm. their time is very poor. They simply can't wear as many hats. They might start off in the business wearing all the hats. Then they realise that things are becoming way too much and they have to start to delegate and let go. So letting go and outsourcing allows you to scale. Mm-hmm. And everyone always sort of starts off going, I-, I can only do it the best or it has to be done by me. But the moment it's quite addictive, the moment you start to actually outsource and have the support and have people who are really quick and fast and efficient, better than what you could do it yourself, you realise that it's better to throw a couple of hundred bucks their way to get it done properly and quickly. And I always recommend outsourcing the things that you don't actually enjoy. Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of outsourcing. More so so that you can basically be in the driver's seat to drive your sales and marketing, to work on the business, to, uh, you know, be creative and keep creating, um, but not to be so caught up in all the back-end admin and also packaging, for instance, you know, the packing of, of orders. Yeah, I like to say, like, focus on the on the revenue-generating aspects of your business and delegate the, the stuff. So for me... I like to think of like my client work and my student work, they're the, they're the revenue generating aspects of my business. So I need to be closest to those. Anything that's further away, the more, the further away that something gets from that bookkeeping, you know, accounting or um, all this sort of stuff, that's, that's the stuff to delegate. And I like to say, I, I just recently did an episode on how to use a VA to delegate, but you should really have these three lists of like one are things that you have to do. So they're the revenue generating activities of, maybe being the face of the business or developing new products or um, the networking aspect that you need to be involved in. Then you've got the jobs that you don't want to do or you can't do. So they're the things that automatically can get delegated. And there, and then there's that the third column where it's the jobs that you actually love doing, but you shouldn't be doing. And they're the hardest to delegate off. You know, they're the ones that you're actually quite good at doing and you enjoy doing it. It might be creating Canva graphics or it could be, um, you know, scheduling your social media posts that maybe you love to do that, but it's not the best use of your time. So to start thinking in the way that, you know, which column does this fit into? How can I get this off my plate? I think that's the biggest um, transition that I see is a, um, an inner confidence in um, the women that I do coach who are scaling their businesses rapidly that they have to, they recognize that they've outgrown their space, that they need to move into a larger space, they need more help and that they aren't going to make the business drive the revenue up 
if they're actually working in the background or on the tools, as I call it. So there is a, a clear definition and I think there's confidence that comes with that and the confidence and clarity grows as the business becomes more profitable and the demand is there. Yeah, and I think going back to the pricing aspect of it and the discounting, that pricing really comes down to confidence and knowing what you, um, knowing that you're worth charging what you're charging. And I think that that requires, it, it does require confidence because when you're so close to the product, you tend to undervalue it. Um, so, um, but when you do undervalue it, you tend to attract you know, those bottom feeders that will undervalue your product regardless of how much it's priced. So, And I've coached people, um, you know, in the artist illustrator world who have phenomenal success and, um, you know, are sort of well-known names, yet they still have doubts about what people are going to say to them. Oh, that's too expensive. Oh, I can't afford that. And I saw something recently that sounded really great. It was um, my prices are not based on your budget or your affordability. You know, like my skills are my own and um, it's not based on what you can afford. And I think that's what people have to remember, that there's a lot more that goes into a business than just producing a pretty looking product at the end of the day. There's, there's a lot of resources and a lot of time and passion, as you know, as a small business owner, it's, it's you know, a full-on um, full life commitment when you're a business owner. So it's not all about just selling, you know, one unit of this and, and 10 units here. It, there's a lot involved. Yeah, and I think people that, a lot of people won't appreciate that and they're the ones that will get in your ear and you'll feel bad about, you know, if you're at the markets in particular. I always say to people, you know, like they sort of might be priced at the higher end and there will always be people that will um, be passionate and connected and emotionally connected to those sorts of things when, um, but they'll also again be your other type of buyers that aren't your right customers that prefer to go shopping at Kmart or Big W. Yeah, and there's no point trying to sway them. No, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been amazing to have you chat. I, um, I always learn so much from you. You're welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. So where can people get in touch with you, find out more? Like where are all your, where, where do you live on the socials and your website? Well, my website address is uh, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H-J for jump. Cross, I have to say J because sometimes that gets left out and people just type in Sarah Cross. So it's sarahjcross.com is my website. So you can go there and find out some more information and, um, you know, connect with me there. Um, my socials, my Instagram is sarahjcross underscore official. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Katie. So I hope you enjoyed that chat. Sarah is just phenomenal and I've got her to deliver a masterclass to my students next week to teach a bit more in depth about the pricing strategy and how to improve that in your econ business. And if you want to connect with me, I'm at katiegriffin underscore on Instagram. You can visit my website, sundaydigital.com.au. And I think that's all you really need to know for now. Make sure you leave a rating and review. That really helps bump me up the charts and I'm ego driven. So I love to see my name on the charts. And, you know, I guess it helps other people find me. That's what people say. So I'll just lean on that. But I will be in your ears next week. So I will speak to you then.